Welcome to the Paranormal Pendle podcast, coming to you from the heart of Pendle Witch Country in the northwest of England. My name is Craig Bryant, author, investigator, and collector of stories. Join me as we take a journey into the paranormal, UFO sightings, cryptozoology, and big cats. This is the Paranormal Pendle podcast. This podcast contains graphic descriptions of animal mutilation. Welcome to episode two of Paranormal Pendle, broadcasting to the Paranormal UK Radio Network at paukradio.com. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode is Lee Nicholson, UFO and animal mutilation investigator, amongst other interests, from the northwest of England. Lee, thanks for joining us. Could you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Of course, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, Craig. It's great to be here. So um, I, I was born in 1975. Uh, I live in Barnallswick, which is in Pendle, obviously. And uh, I've been interested in this subject for about 30 years now, probably. Um, for the early years, really, it was mostly just reading, you know. In those days, pre-internet, so going to the library, <laughs> chasing the references and all that and ordering books and things. But um, as time moved on, I discovered the conferences that were organised in Leeds by the people that run the UFO magazine. And so I used to go there quite a bit. Uh, and eventually, it wasn't it was much later, probably 2005, I got involved in the Open Minds Forum. And that was when I, you know, I started to take things a little bit more seriously. Uh, you know, liaising with a lot of different researchers and things like that. And... Uh, it was quite popular at the time, the Open Minds Forum. So, yeah, we did, we did all sorts. We had quite a lot of different researchers were on there. I don't know if you know of John Lear. Um, there's a guy called Edgar Fougier, who was the guy that um, t- coined the term the TR3B as an explanation for the black triangles. We had uh, a woman called Angelia Joyner. She, she was uh, a researcher from Texas, and, and she, um, it was... The Stevensville flap, I don't know if you know about that one, in 2007. No, I've not heard of that. Do you want to to tell us about that? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, It was essentially, there was was a whole series of sightings in this small town in Texas, Stevensville. And um, one of them was a a pilot and he saw something so dramatic, he he thought it was the end of the world. (laughs) It was a massive rectangle in the sky and he saw some jets coming towards it and all sorts. Uh, I think there was another three or four quite big sightings in the area. And uh, Angelia Joyner, she she was the journalist at the time for the local paper, and she sort of broke the story, essentially. So she ended up joining the forum, and, and um, some of the members even went out there to meet with her as well. She was a very, you know, very good journalist, really, really lovely person. And unfortunately, sadly, she actually passed away this year of COVID. Can we move a little bit closer to home then? You're from the northwest of England, which is um, where I'm from. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have some UFO sightings that, that you can tell us about which are a bit more local to this area? And also, I believe that your parents um, have had a number of encounters as well. So could you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I'd thank my dad for, uh, <laughs> for getting me interested in this subject, really. He was always interested in it. He used to talk about it quite a lot. But um, going right back to the beginning, he was born in 1947. So this is the year of the Roswell crash, coincidentally. But he, he was actually born in uh, Hunnambe, which is um, one of Paul Sinclair's hotspots up there. Uh, he's investigated quite a few UFOs up in that area. 
And um, my dad always insisted that when he, I think he lived there until he was about five or six. So he was quite young, but he used to have uh, what's known as a bedroom visitation experience. So essentially several times he woke up, paralyzed, couldn't move and was surrounded by beings. I'm mean, not just talking two or three. I think sometimes there were six or more of these strange hooded beings in his room. He couldn't move. Uh, eventually it would subside and he'd run and tell his parents and they just sort of dismissed it as dreams, you know, as is often the case. But he insisted that th this was something real, you know. And later in life, he, he sort of recognised these beings as what's known today as a classic grey being. So, I mean, for him, that was where it started. But he actually had quite a few sightings, not too dramatic, but quite a few sightings during his life. Um so, yeah, because it's, it's quite a sort of hot spot, isn't it, over there on the East Coast? As we know, Paul um, does a lot of investigation of various different things over there. Um, what about your own personal UFO sightings then? Can you tell us a, a few of those? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll just, I'll just carry on a little bit with my, some of my family stuff, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, another thing that, that my dad told me is that um, his dad wasn't very interested and they didn't have a great relationship, to be fair, but um, his mum was a little bit more interested. She, she told him a story one time where um, she'd seen a, a flower come down from the sky and a fairy came out <laughs> to talk to her. So, you know, again, this is sort of suggestive of abduction-type phenomena, you know, as we know nowadays. But in, in those days, she, she really didn't, didn't know what it meant, you know. And then there was another occasion as well which my dad actually had um, two brothers and two sisters, so they're quite a big family. And uh, my uncle Peter was talking to his mum at one time and she told him this story where she'd had a, a ball of light come in down the chimney, into the room, fly around the room a little bit and then leave through the window without damage anything or, you know, electrocuting anybody. And so as my uncle said, well, that's not ball lightning, is it? <laughs> so, you know, again, it's an interesting one. Yeah, uh, and there is more. So my, my mom, my dad, so my dad was from over there, but my mom lived in Eerby, which is just the next town from where I am now. And um, I think they got together about 1969 and uh, they moved up to Barn Oswick. Now, she didn't have any interest or had never seen a UFO until that time. But funnily enough, 1969, she went out to the toilet one night. I don't know the exact date. Um, it was the outside toilet in those days and uh, looked up at the sky and she saw seven, she said, greenish, greeny blue tubes or cigar shaped objects, you know, going over the town. So, I mean, something like that, it's not, it's no easy explanation, you know, for something like that. <clears throat> the colours off, the shapes off, a large cluster of them flying like that, you know. What about your own sightings then? Could you, could you tell us some of those? Yeah, well, I've just got one more, which happened when I was very... Well, This, I suppose I was there, but I don't remember it. So I, we believe this was about 1979, and um, it, was, it was here in this house. So um, apparently we all went out in the garden to watch this, and, and what they saw was it was a large... I mean, my mum just earlier today said it, it was huge. It was a massive thing. She wasn't sure about colour, but I seem to think my dad said it was an orangey colour. But this was a disc shape, so it wasn't just a sphere. It was huge disc shape flying from right to left. And a, a couple of minutes later, there was a second one as well. And they were going quite slow and silently. And uh, he, always, he always said that it had, it appeared to have a little tail underneath and to the back. And he, he always joked that it was a little bit like the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> you know, 
but but this this was certainly something they saw it was really really interesting you know as i say i don't remember it but i kind of wish i did do you know if anybody um, saw that then do you know if it was i don't know no um one of the things i'm hoping to do moving forward is to get into the the archives of the barnals of Kenobi times i've actually i have been through some of the online archives but they sort of stopped it's 1900, something like that. So it doesn't really come up to modern times. So I think I need to get into their actual, probably their paper archives, actually. Um, yeah, so beyond that, I, I had a, an experience when I was, I think, about eight. And uh, in those days, I'm sure you were the same, Craig, we just used to play out in the fields and, you know, play army and run around till it was dark. And, and my mum used to literally open the door and shout, you know, bedtime or tea time, and we'd just come back. So on this particular night, we were just out out here, actually, where I am now. And uh, it's, it's a wasteland. It's now a car park, but it used to be just a wasteland running onto some industrial areas. And um, we'd, we'd play around there. And this particular night, there was me and three other friends. There were uh, uh, two brothers and a sister, Michael, Matthew, and Lorraine Brown. And uh, Michael was a couple of years older than me. So we were out here and, and we were toy fighting. And I'm sure you remember that the aim of the game in toy fighting was you don't fight, it's more of a wrestle, you know? And the idea is you pin the person down. So Michael being a bit older than me, and I'd managed to get him on the ground and I'd got to this, the idea is you sort of shuffle onto the, sit on the stomach, you get the knees onto the arms, <laughs> pin the hands down, and then you've won, you know? I'm sure you know, Craig. I'm sure, yeah, <laughs> sure yeah. you played the game. So on this occasion... I was sort of getting quite excited. that I'm just about to pin him down. This older lad, he's older than me, you know, I'm bigger than me. He was probably about 10. Um, and then he stopped. He stopped stopped resisting and he just looking over my shoulder. And it, I think he said something to the effect of what the, was that, you know. He probably swore, <laughs> but we weren't. Um, anyway, I didn't quite believe him at first because it's your typical, it's behind you moment, isn't it? You know, it's behind you. Well, it, apparently it was. And so... I spoke to him, I spoke to, to the other two, and they all saw it. And what he described was, um, it was a bright star-like object, which came across here and sort of stopped above where we were, which is at the point when he were like, what's that? And he says, as, as I sort of turned around to look, this thing just shot away, and I can't remember it. I can't remember seeing it, so whether I missed it, you know, it went before I turned, but he said it just shot away. So again, something there, you've got the sort of typical UFO observables as they're known today, instant instantaneous acceleration, the ability to stop and hover, silent flight, etc. you know. So it, all interesting stuff. Um, Obviously, before, before we had this, um, before we started this podcast, we, we had a, um, a discussion by email and you mentioned in your email that you wanted to talk about the Ford family. So do you want to go into a little bit more detail about that? Yeah, I can do. I mean, it's quite a long story. It's a, it's a very intricate and, and a long detailed case. So let's have a look here. We can go straight into that now, if you like. Yeah. Um, I, do have, I do have historical sightings from the area as well. But we can always come back to those. Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the Ford family, it was um, a local family. They live in Barn Oldswick, and it was in 1994, I think. I think it was about 95 I first heard about this, but they were friends of my parents. So what I heard was that a local builder and his family are seeing UFOs. Now, for me, in 1991, I just 
taken a very serious interest in this subject. I picked up a book called The Welsh Triangle and that I, that just inspired me. I, you know, I haven't looked back since. Essentially, I've read everything I can get my hands on. So moving forward four years and apparently there's now events happening in town again. So I, I spoke to my parents and I arranged to go and visit the family. I went up there several times, actually, for, you know, hours and hours at a time. Um, so they explained to me the things that have been happening which we can start to run through now if you like yes Um, and the first one was an event that happened in 19 it was in december of 1994 it's the 19th of december 1994 and it was it was early evening so it was a sunday evening and and uh melford he's actually passed away now unfortunately a couple of years ago and his wife helen and then they had two sons john and andrew so all, all the four of them were up at the house, including the two girlfriends as well, so the six people. And it was Mel who noticed this orange light outside of the window, and it was moving around, it caught his eye. So he called everyone else to come and watch. They all went outside and watched. And what he said is there were, I think there were four of these orange balls manoeuvring around, disappearing, reappearing, and then they all disappeared and were replaced by some, what he said, were greenish-white lights. Two of them, and one was slightly higher than the other. And he said they proceeded to to line up with almost a sort of mechanical motion and then join into one. Now, this continued for about 15 minutes. These things were disappearing, reappearing, all kinds of amazing manoeuvres. Now, they lived just on the edge of town. Uh, on, on Ben Lane, it's called, which overlooks uh, Rolls-Royce playing fields and, and hills. There's Gill Church beyond that. And so it's quite an open, quiet area of town, you know. Um, and and they, they were blown away. I mean, they tried to take a picture, and I, I saw the picture, but it didn't come out, and I think the porch light had, had actually obscured that. But, um, yeah, so that was the first event, and, uh, and that it actually... A lot of things followed from that. So, I mean, I'll just carry on if you like. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Tell us tell us what happened to the place, yeah. Okay, so so following this, I think it was, I don't know if it's a few days or a week or whatever, uh, Mel's eldest son, John, began complaining of um, strange experiences at night. Essentially, he was waking up paralysed with a sense of a presence in the room and uh, a light as well. I think this happened once and he sort of told his parents, they, they dismissed him. They, they didn't, no, none of them had any interest in this or any knowledge of it at this time. Uh, and, and Mel even said, oh, he's going nuts, he's yawn. <laughs> this was his quote. But anyway, it happened again. And uh, I, think, I think John's grandma had died recently and, and Helen had suggested, oh, maybe it's your grandma. And he said, I, I don't think it's my grandma. The shining lights in my face, you know. Apparently he was, he was too scared to look the first time. He, he just kept his eyes tight shut. But it happened again, and uh, it, it, it seemed to, to sort of go away, whatever. It ended, essentially. And so he went into his room, and, and he'd apparently been sweating so much, he'd, he'd drenched two pillows right through. So, I mean, if you think about that, that, that's quite a lot of liquid, you know. It really, really is. So, anyway, that, that's as it stood. And then a week or so later, uh, Mel woke up 3 o'clock in the morning, and he, he noticed, and he's commented this a few times, the room was absolutely black. It was pitch black. And he normally has a little bit of ambient streetlight that makes its way into the room, as you know, as we all do, really, I suppose. But it was absolutely pitch black. 
he also realised he couldn't move. And what he saw were two orange, what he called eyes, two orange eyes about four foot off the ground looking at him. He couldn't move, but he wanted to get his wife's attention. So he started, he managed, he could vocalise. He could, Helen, Helen, like this, you know, and, and trying to nudge and look, look. Anyway, she eventually flicked the light, light on and there was nothing there. That was it. He could move again. It ended. That was that. The next day, though, they discovered that the clock, which was actually a tease made, had stopped at three o'clock. So, I mean, we've heard this before and we will hear it again, I'm sure, you know. So, I mean, that... <laughs> It goes on and on, but I'm going to have to probably look to my notes here to remember so, where we're at. So, could I, it, would, would you say then that this is attributed more to something um, alien rather than paranormal? Right, well, yeah. Um, no, I, I think it, it all began with this incident. Now, when I did speak to Mel, he, he like a lot of people, he did say, do you know, I, I did see something when I was young. It was an odd few things happened when he was younger, but it was not... Never thought about it. It wasn't an interest. He wasn't even interested in science fiction or anything. So now it's interesting to ask, is there a paranormal element to this? Because there is. And, and to me, this is what made this such an important case as well, because it underlines something which, which I think a lot of people are clear on now. But back in those days and, and year, you know, years before, people necessarily weren't, which is that a lot of these phenomena seem to be interrelated. They seem to occur together. You know, we don't necessarily know why, but, but it's certainly the case. So if I, if I just, well, I'll just carry on. Um, following this experience with the eyes, I think it was actually the next day, he woke up and he had something in his head, a lump. So he was scratching and pulling and picking, and he managed to pull something out of his head. Now, he actually, it was a small ball. I don't know if you're familiar with the implant scenarios. That, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the suggestion is what is that this that's what this is. Now Tony Dodd, do you know Tony Dodd? I guess you do. Yeah. Um, former police officer and UFO investigator. Yeah. Uh, he investigated the case. He, he went to speak to Mel, and he actually sent this object away to America. Now what I heard is that the, it, the results that came back they just said it was a piece of wood. <laughs> now Mel wasn't having that because he said you know it was round. It wasn't wood just didn't make any sense. So we don't really know what happened there. But I do know that one of the local investigators, he had hold of it for time. <clears throat> and apparently he tried to look at it under a microscope. When he added some solution to it, it split in half and revealed what he said was like cells inside. I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I have spoke to him, but he didn't really give me any more information. So that, that was interesting. Did he take that any further then? Was there any further investigation done into that? No, it was, um, I think it was lost at that, at that point, you know, and, and I think Tony Dodd did have some issues with that sometimes, that some of the evidence he received and sent away for analysis got lost. I mean, it, it's happened before. So what else um, happened to the family then? Well, uh, so many things. I'm just trying to go through here and just pick out a few of the highlights, if you will. Well, you asked about paranormal experiences. So I think one of the next things here in the report I'd group these events together because they're similar, but they didn't happen, you know, in this timeline, if you will. But um, let's have a look. One of the things was they had uh, an ornamental mask next to the TV, like most of us does, a wooden carved mask. And uh, I think it was youngest son, Andrew, had come down one morning and 
it was on the floor. So he thought nothing of it, you know. And, and this went on for about a week. He kept finding it on the floor, but it wasn't, it was sort of about a meter from the shelf. You know, it wasn't just below it. It happened several times. And then eventually, Mel and Helen both saw it jump right off on its own. So a poltergeist type event, if you will. They had another one where they were, they were both in the bedroom. I think they had a little dog at the time and, and the dog was a little bit unsettled. And uh, all of a sudden, two of the suitcases came off the wardrobe, right off the wardrobe onto the floor. No rhyme or reason for it. But, you know, that's what happened. So that does sound like classic poltergeist activity, doesn't it? Do you have any idea it does. whether there was any other um, physical manifestations such as knocks, bangs, noises, anything like that? Yeah, I believe there was. I think um, Helen told me she sometimes heard a voice during the day. I think she was home a lot on her own because Mel would obviously be out working doing the building rounds, you know. Um, letterbox springs go and you know i remember mel saying he's got hellish springs on as that letterbox you know no mail or anything you know he had one incident where um he had he had a, a garage built onto the house it's a detached house and he had a, a tin of creosote in there and this creosote he said it appeared as if it had been squashed and there was just creosote all over the place but he couldn't understand how it gotten out of the container and it, you know there were no footprints or anything but the container had somehow been squashed and the liquid had got out of it, but there's no hollow leaks in it. He had um, his security light. I think it was at a similar time. It kept going on. And when he came to look at it the next day, he discovered it, it was pointing up at the sky. So, you know, the sensor that, that normally trips the light was being tripped by something in the sky. Okay, so this one is one of my <laughs> favourite experiences that he described in a way because it's so unique and so interesting. And this, we don't have an exact date, but we think September to October 95 it was. And it was a, a, a Saturday or a Sunday morning. He was relaxing on his chair in the living room on his own. His wife was in the kitchen. I think there was only one son there at the time. I think it was John, but it could have been Andrew. In the bedroom, still asleep. It's about half past 10, he said, 10 o'clock, something like that. And he sat relaxing in his chair. And he notices uh, what he described as a line around the room of blue. And as he watches, it's starting to raise up. And essentially, he sat, he just sat in the chair and watched this happen. It raised up right to the ceiling, blue. And then as it got to the top, I mean, and this was quite slow, you know, so he, he described it as, as if someone had, had filled the room up with water. So he watched it fill right up to the top, blue, and then empties back down slowly. And that was that. Now, he didn't. He doesn't know that anything happened, no missing time or anything. But his wife, Helen, immediately came in and said, have you just seen the lightning? <laughs> At which point he said, lightning? He said, it's, he said it was a beautiful, clear day like today, you know, crisp blue skies. Have you just seen the light? She said, I've just seen two or three blue beams of light coming through the kitchen window. The son, I think it was John or Andrew, immediately again came out of his bedroom and goes, what's going on? My room's just flashed up blue light. Big flash. So what's interesting to me here, you've got almost got a time discrepancy there between Mel's, you know, slow rising and, and falling of this light, liquid, whatever it is, Helen's quick beams and, and John or Andrew's quick flash of light, you know, which is suggestive, I think, of potentially some missing time or, or something more. 
than that. <clears throat> Do we know if there was um, any sort of similar occurrences to any other people? Did any other people report any strange happenings? Or was it just, did it just seem to be centred on this particular family? Um, it, it did, but now, being a, being a local builder, it, he, he became kind of obsessed. You know, he wanted answers, do you know what I mean? And he wanted to tell people what were happening. So anybody that would listen, he'd tell them about it. And uh, I know he told me that he had two, three, maybe two or three other families come and, and confide that they were having similar things going on. Uh, I've never been able to follow up on any of those. Did they live close by? Not close by, but in town. I think one of them might have been in the next town, but a couple of them in this town, yeah. So now, one of the guys... In... Go on, go ahead. Whatever it was then was sort of centred around the area rather than on a particular location, do you think? Or, or, or was, it, was it... Was Even it... the family themselves, it seemed to be, you know... A very peculiar case. Is, is there anything else that happened to them, or where did it did it stop as quickly as it started? No, no. There's more. Um, there's a lot more. It, it went on till about about 1998, and then it really quietened off a lot. It, it sort of slowly tailed off, but then it really quietened off after 98, and I don't think anything happened really after that. But if we just jump back, um, I'll carry on. Just tell you a few more. You know. Um, so one of the things that interested me about this is um, this light aspect. It's, it's the way it behaves, and it's something that's reported in a lot of different sightings. And it, it's, um, it almost seems to have a substance, you know. It's not a normal light. You'll hear other researchers say it doesn't seem to light the area up, you know, or it, so it seems to be contained, as in this, you know, how does light fill up a room? <laughs> you know what I mean? So now he had another experience, and, and it was... It was following on from one of the previous events, and I can't remember which one it was, but um, essentially, oh yeah, no, I, I remember now. So they'd, they'd come home again from, from a night out, so they have been drinking, but you know, they've been drinking all their lives and they didn't hallucinate UFOs before this. <laughs> so they, they'd walk down the town and they turned, rounded the corner onto the lane, Ben Lane, where they live. And when they rounded the corner, they saw these green spheres, and he described them as being quite dull, actually, not necessarily bright, and very clearly defined. He turned to his wife and said, bloody hell, now they wait for us as we come home. <laughs> All right, he carries on down the corner, round the corner, and they now see uh, a, a glowing green disc as well. But he said this one was much, much brighter, and it was much fuzzier, fuzzier around the edges. So... They went home and they, and they watched these and I think they called the sun out to have a watch, you know, again, for a little bit of time. They disappeared. Okay, that's it. Bedtime. So everybody went to bed and uh, Mel also, he was just about to get in bed and he thought he'd have a look through the window. So he told me he did exactly like this. He got his head, like you do, got the curtains right around his head. So the lights were off in the bedroom anyway. And where he looks, um, you can see there's a basically quite a big hill with an aerial mast on it, which is right next to where the old church is. And he said, what he said he saw was fingers of light, the whole circumference of this hill, beginning to reach up. Maybe four or five, maybe 10, you know, I don't know. Beginning to slowly reach up like this. And he said, he shouted his wife, Helen, and he said, no sooner she's getting her knees out of bed, is how he said it. <laughs> he started to retract slowly, retract down until they were gone so she didn't see anything but again it's this you know this strange kind of light very interesting 
which in this case seemed to attach itself to some sort of aerial mast. Well, it, I mean, the mast is on the hill, but this, this was the whole circumference of the hill. Okay. So uh, it, it, it's quite an area. You know, it's a good few hundred feet. Yeah. But there's an, actually an underground reservoir there as well, which was a, a point of interest. When did these this phenomena stop? No, it tailed off. It did, it did tail off. But um, there's at least one more important one we have to talk about before we, we move on. Okay, so it was the 3rd of December, 1995. And again, um, I think this may have been a Friday night. I think Mel had gone out on his own. I think they used to go out together on a Saturday and on his own on a Friday, like a lot of couples did in those days. Um, and he was walking home. So he'd had a few drinks, but, you know, nothing ridiculous. Walked down home and he reached, just as he's approaching the same area where he's previously seen these UFOs, Ben Lane, there's a, there's a bus station. It's actually on the main road going through town and there's a bus station on you, right? And he said, as he approached this bus station, there was a tall woman. Now, he's quite tall as Mel. And he said she was taller than him. So it's kind of unusual, I would say. Just, just passing him, he just, she said, he said good night. She seemed to say good night. That was, that was, I didn't think much of it. Another step. And then he saw a small being and he made it very clear that this being was stood on the grass, you know, often you get pavement grass and a wall set up next to a road. It was stood on the grass next to the corner, not the pavement. And he, he stopped and because he, he thought, what the hell's that? He said it was about four foot tall. It was, it had a hood. It was, it was a hooded being. Um, he couldn't see any feet because the robe covered its feet. And he said it had, it had quite long sleeves and it had its hands together in front of it. And it seemed to be carrying something. He sort of stopped and he said, <laughs> part of his thinking, like, do I run the other way or what? But he didn't feel scared. And this thing proceeded to go around the corner before he did. Now, he said it turned and looked at him and it met eyes. And he said it had big, black, shiny eyes and a pointed chin. And he said, you know, you don't get any facial expressions off something like that. It's not like a human face. You don't know how it's feeling. Now, the strange thing is, he, he doesn't really know what happened after that. I've asked him, and he doesn't remember walking home after that. And I do know Helen uh, made the point that he, he was a bit later than normal that night, maybe, you know, quite a bit later. So possibly missing time there, possibly. And obviously missing memory as well. Yeah. Can we move on then to um, some sort of uh, historical sightings in, in the area? Yeah, I mean, I, I did quite quite a bit of research on this and um, I've started to gather quite a few. So uh, I've got a bit of a timeline, which I think, to be honest, Craig, it's something you, you might we might want to go through again. Yeah, sure, <laughs> a yeah. A different time because I don't think we've got to cover it all. But, oh, um, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to have you back on and, and talk just purely about um, UFO sightings in the area. Do you want to go on to talk about, because your other interest is in, um, animal mutilations, isn't it? Do you want to do you, yeah. want to do you want to talk a little bit about that? Then how you got into that? Um, again, if there's any notable cases, uh, and then if we can move on to the Tobinick case from last year, which is a really interesting one, then that'd be great. The earliest one that I've got is from the Burnley Express, thirty uh, first of August, nineteen oh seven. So I mean, I can read this to you if you want. Yeah, please do. But it's uh, 
At about a quarter past nine the other evening, writes a correspondent, several people standing at Messrs Cunningham Corner, Manchester Road, observed a moving light in the sky to the northeast. It resembled a streetlight and shone more brightly as it moved eastwards. Then its intensity dis- diminished as it receded. He asks if any other people noticed the light and wonders if it were a stellar phenomenon or a balloon carrying a light. That, that was 1907. So that's interesting because it's unlikely to be an aircraft. Yeah, exactly. No drones. <laughs> you know, the, the bane of the research of today is the drone, you know. Of course. <laughs> was it Chinese a drone? Chinese lanterns. Um, but no, yeah. that, that's interesting. So so do we know where, which sort of direction that was? Was that was that over Pendle Hill, did you say? I think that was looking over towards Pendle Hill, yeah, from my calculating. Looking at the map and the direction of things, it was. Now, um, I don't know if you've seen Jenny Randall's book, The Pennine UFO Mystery. Yeah. I mean, she she had a, a site in, in Barn Oldswick in there. It was 1977. Um, of a triangle, a coach load of people saw a triangle. So that, that was my, my inspirations. But she mentioned in that book um, a, a, a sighting of a pendle of an airship, so the mystery airships of about 1913. But there was no detail. Well, I, I think I found the report, and it was, it was in the Burnley... Burnley Express uh, on the 3rd of March, uh, the 1st of March, sorry. I mean, I can read this one as well, if you like. Please do. Light in the Sky is the title. Some excitement was caused in Burnley on Thursday night by the appearance of a mysterious light in the sky. Crowds of people gathered at various points and watched the motion of the light. Interest was intensified by reports that a dirigible or balloon or some other aerial visitor from the continent had paid a visit to these shores. Naturally, in the darkness, nothing could be seen of any balloon other than the agent carrying the light. But the light, which was seen, was no star or reflection from a powerful searchlight. Could not be doubted. Seen from a point on Yorkshire Street about 9.45, the light then was west of town, looking over Wapping, and appeared to be perhaps six or seven miles away. In appearance, the light was like from a strong mortar lamp, white and powerful, Various evolutions were apparently being carried out, the light moving about over a big area, rising and falling to different altitudes, and finally having been visible for some time, it dropped out of line vision behind the houses. So, you know, again, it's very early. It's very interesting. These, these reports were happening all over the country, weren't they, the, the mystery airships? So it was good, you know, so we know it was happening in our area as well. Did you have any more um yeah yes there's laws but what i don't have is all the details in front of me you know okay so i mean i do have a, a facebook page which is where I've, I've been posting a lot of this stuff it's called ufos over barlick slash pendle um there's stuff on there and some of these reports are on there what i, I posted some at christmas so i had a, a report of a flying saucer uh it was the third of january no it was Sorry, the 30th December 1950. It was actually Christmas Day, but it was in the paper on that day. And then another little interesting story I'll tell you here was um, is in the Barn Oswick and Times, 1954, is the PV Poltergeist. And so the story of this one is, uh, the headline was, Ghost Drives 11 to One Room. And uh, if you read the article, which is on the Facebook page, um, the family, it was almost similar to the Ford family in a sense, but it was much more focused in the house. They did have beings, hooded beings, in seeing them upstairs and in rooms. 
they had strange lights and, and various things. But they got to a point where they, they were all living and sleeping in one room because they were scared. And they'd gone to the council to ask to be moved because it, it was a council house at the time. So, yeah, I mean, I thought that was quite an interesting one. Do we know what sort of phenomena were, were happening then? Was uh, Again, was there any physical phenomena with that one? Yeah, I think I think there was the sort of sightings of beings. There was sounds, knockings. There were strange lights and things like that. So yeah, all sorts. Um, I can't remember all the specific details. To be fair, well, there seems to be a theme, doesn't there? Because that sounds very similar to the to the Ford family. So that that's interesting. Yeah. So I wonder then if it's something to do with the area, whether it's attracting these these kind of phenomena, these lights in the sky. Uh, that's that's in the in in the land in the geology that's that's attracting these uh, these strange things. Yeah, I mean it could be any of those, any of the above. Uh, I think a lot of lot of researchers look at families, you know, and, and you can follow some of these phenomena through family lines going right back. Can we move on to animal mutilations then? Can you can you tell us a bit about um, about your research into into that phenomena? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, it's it's a controversial subject, even within UFO research, really, is the mutilations. Not only does, does not everybody agree that it's, it's connected, but a lot of people just don't really want to get involved. You know, it's, it's a bit, it's unpleasant, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'll, I'll say right now that I, I'm an animal lover, <laughs> so I take no pleasure in this, but I do find it fascinating. Uh, and the reason I find it so fascinating is because, uh, to me, it's almost the opposite of a UFO sighting, where you get a report, but the thing's gone. In this case, you've got something on the ground that needs investigating, you know. The problem that we tend to have is a lack of resources. It's, you know, you need a lot of money just to have a necropsy done. It's expensive. Most of the animal owners, they can't afford it, you know. So, But anyway, we, we can sort of roll back a bit and, and um, look at the phenomenon. Yeah, so how did you get involved in, in these types of cases in the first place? Uh, well, for me, it was it was going to the conferences and, and listening to the likes of Tony Dodd and, and Linda Moulton Howe do presentations and, and, you know, talk about these cases. And so that, that caught my attention, like I say, because it's evidence, you know, and this is a subject that's kind of lacking in evidence for the most part. Um, but, you know, what a lot of people don't realise is that actually the, there are suggestions. This goes back to possibly as early as the 1600s. I have a book here, Bloodless Cuts. It's a monster book. And this is the complete works of Thomas Adams from 1978 to 92. And there are literally thousands of cases in here. Usually the sheriffs are involved and veterinary surgeons are involved, you know. And um, it's worth pointing out that nobody's ever been charged for the ever you know, people have arrested but they've been let go nobody's ever been charged for these incidents um do you think then that some of these could be big cats that are causing these injuries uh no i don't but th there is a, an interesting connection there that yeah we, we probably should talk about after this um i don't know because because the very very clinical you know specifically these types of mutilations now are big cats killing <clears throat> livestock I, I think so yeah but i'd rather sort of come back to that if we can if that's all right have you got any 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 good examples then of, of cases that you've you've investigated that obviously weren't predation as such yeah i mean without going into the todd 
case just yet. We can look at just the case files that are available, you know, in books and things. And I mean, this this subject, there's not very many books on the subject. I've got about four. I think there probably is only about four. You know, there's this book, uh, Killers on the Moor by Mike Freebury. Uh, this is, is UK based. Okay. And then there's the Bloodless Cuts one. So anyway, in Bloodless Cuts, there is a reference to a case from 1600. It's a newspaper article. And uh, it's just a reference to sheep attacks around London and the fact that no meat is taken and that they're quite clinical. And I think the end of the, the article is something most people think it tendeth towards some fireworks, <laughs> is what it says. But then there are other cases from sort of the 1900s and 1800s. But sort of officially, the earliest case, I, I think you may have heard of this one, it was um, Snippy the Horse. It is referred to, but the horse was actually called Lady. It was called Snippy in the media. I think it was 1967. And uh, this particular case, it involved the UFO sighting. This was one of the first documented animal mutilation cases. And it was a horse, you know. It wasn't, wasn't a, a cow or a bull. It was a horse. Um, there was trace marks on the ground. Then the animal had the typical injuries of the, the neck was mostly gone, but it had the jaw strip, etc. And I mean, this became, and still is, it's a big problem for, for ranchers and things in the States, but also in, a, in Argentina and you know, all kinds of countries. It is not just an American phenomenon. But in America in particular, the investigation has been quite heavy. You know, the FBI were involved. They kind of debunked it, to be fair. But they were forced to get involved because it was such a, a big issue. You know, so many, so much, many, millions and millions of dollars and it continues today. Colorado is, is a big area for it. And, and just this week, there have been more reports in Colorado. So what about cases in the UK then, apart from the Tomlinson case, which we'll get onto in a moment? Are there any other notable cases from around, around these aisles? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, Tony Dodd was one of the earliest people to investigate this in this country. And I think he, his earlier cases were, again, up on the East Coast. Um, he had a few up there, and you may have seen some of the pictures he put. He's put around. There's some. Uh, I mean, this is. This, you just reminded me of something actually. I would like to bring up. Um, just jumping back, if you don't mind. This is, this relates to the Ford family. So, one of the events that happened at the Ford family house during this first 12 months of intense activity was, um, on one occasion, Helen, Mrs. Ford opened the, the back door to go out into the, to the yard and she found two mice. These mice were perfectly aligned next to each other. And she had a little bit of a look at them and she thought they looked like they might have a, a hole in the head. She didn't really think much more of it. Never heard of animal mutilations. Told her husband, he threw them over the fence, you know. The next day, she went out exactly the same. Two more, exactly the same, side by side. Again, with holes in the head. Now, Mel, again, he didn't know anything about it. He just threw them away. But what's really, really interesting is that Tony Dodd, at the same time, was investigating the case of Jason Andrews. There is a book, uh, it's called Abducted by Anne Andrews. And, you know, without going into the, the case in detail, uh, they were having all kinds of strange phenomena and the son was having strange experiences. Um, they were having animals were being attacked just slightly little cuts on the on the horses and things and then on one occasion they found four dead mice all lined up in a neat row each with a hole in its head and the rectum's cord out 
Now that that's sort of quite classic animal mutilation injuries, you know, type injuries. So the suggestion is <clears throat> that this is also happening to animals as small as mice. So it's not domestic cats or, or feral cats or or anything like we that? We didn't think so in this case because of the way they were so neatly placed and aligned, you know, and two separate cases, both involving four mice. It's, you know, it's uncanny, isn't it? It is. I've never heard that before. That is that is quite peculiar. Any other cases from, from Britain? Yeah, I mean, there's actually quite a lot. Um, I've been... I've been talking quite a lot to David Caton recently. We've become quite close and we've been working together, sharing information and things. And David Caton is one of UK's leading researchers in this field. Um, he, he sort of took the mantle from Tony Dodd, essentially, and he started around 1999. And what David Caton did is he, um, he put an advert in the Farmers Weekly describing the types of injuries and asking for contact from, from farmers. And it paid off. He got about 30 responses initially now what also what david Caton did is he uh, he made friends um made an ally of a gentleman called tony freeman who was a professor of pathology at manchester university and uh, professor freeman agreed to receive carcasses and to examine them as well so um you know i don't really want to go into David's case files too much, you know, that, that's sort of his place. But what David did is he created an organization called the Animal Pathology um, Field Unit. And it was David Caton and, and Phil Hoyle, is, is the other key researcher. There was a couple of other people as well. But um, yeah, I mean, they, they've got quite a lot of cases, you know, uh, and, and, and repeat, you know, some of these areas are, are seeing repeat phenomenon year after year, just the same as it is in the States. Yeah, and it's interesting you said that the farmers were quite happy to divulge information because I know quite a lot of farmers in this area. It's a rural area where I live, um, and they do tend to keep themselves to themselves, and they don't like to talk about strange phenomena. A lot of them don't believe in, yeah, um, you know, UFOs or or, or, or whatever. Um, and I believe that that was the case um, of the farmer who was involved in the Tomlinson case that he was very much. Um, didn't want to speak to anybody because he absolutely poo-pooed the idea of anything extraterrestrial or anything UFO that, that was involved in that particular case. How did you get involved in that case then, Lee? Yeah, um, for, me, so for me, what it was is I, I saw it online. So I just saw the pictures. It was Deborah Hatswell had posted the pictures. So I, I, as soon as I saw that, I knew what I was looking at and I, it was important to me. So I reached out to Deborah Hatswell straight away. Um, and she was very helpful. Uh, she put me in touch with um, Albert T.S., who's the guy that discovered the, the calf and took the photographs. Um, and also David Caton, because, because she was liaising with David at the time. And David was very helpful. He, he gave me a, a lot of advice on, on what to look for. And uh, within a couple of days, you know, we made arrangements and we met up with Albert, this, myself and my partner, Victoria, uh, at Tomadon. And when we had a look at the calf. Now, if you like, we can step back and, and explain the, the story here. Yeah. So Albert Tears um, is the guy that found the calf and he and his girlfriend decided to go for a walk. And it was a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. It was a lovely day again. And um, they'd gone to Tomadam. They didn't live too far away to have a walk around Gaddings Dam, as you know. Um, 
not far from the Lumbutz Road. And not far down the walk, they'd noticed something in the grass, which Albert thought was a dead sheep. Now, he told me he'd been quite interested in the missing 911 stuff and mutilations, and, and so this caught his eye. So as he got closer, though, he thought it might be a, a Labrador because of the colour and the size. And the closer he got, he realised, no, this is actually a calf. And I think it's a Jersey calf, personally. I think it is. I could be wrong. But, you know, it's got that golden colour. So the first thing he noticed is that he had no tail. He was a little bit puzzled at that. And then the closer he got, he realised what he was looking at. He took about seven pictures and he sent them off to uh, Deborah Hartswell. Unfortunately for me, by the time I, I got the information and made contact with Albert and got up there, it was actually 12 days later. Now, looking at the pictures, um, I suspect that it may have happened on the, the day before Albert found it because it's very fresh. There's some fresh, wet blood. Hardly any, but there is some. And, you know, I think it dries fairly quick, there's blood. So um, so by the time I got there, there wasn't a lot that, that, that I could, you know, do with the carcass itself. But we did what we could. So we checked for uh, electromagnetic radiation, just using apps on the phones. And they're not brilliant, but they will work. You know, they will take a big spike. It will show up. Uh, we, we took a powerful magnet and we just swung that around, trying to pick up any magnetic particles or anything like that. Um, now, we, we can look at the injuries a little bit here. So this calf had a, a classic jaw strip, which is a, an oval cut right around the mouth, under the throat area. And, and it's actually the whole skin is stripped away and muscle tendons and everything to expose clean bone on the jaw. This is probably the classic animal mutilation injury. I mean, I, I've got literally got hundreds of pictures. <laughs> There's a book full of them there. But, you know, there was a case in, um, I think it was in Colorado, and I've got the photographs of it. It was about a month after the Tomlinson case. It was a fully grown cow, this one, but it's almost identical. It's lying on the same side. It's got the same jaw strip. The ear's a little bit different, but it's got an ear cut and a rectum core as well. It's uncanny, you know, it's almost identical. I was gonna, just going to ask if you, you mentioned about trying to um, detect any electromagnetic uh, waves or, or radiation or, or something along those lines. Did, did you pick anything up? No, there wasn't anything, no. But this is something that, that people have found before, other researchers have found before, you know, it's, it's worth checking. But, of course, we were 12 days late essentially you know ideally we would have got up there the next day and we may have picked up something um the other thing we were looking for was an ear tag because the the, the ear it was the left ear was gone and it was cut right back to the skull which is again is a typical injury but also you can look at the photographs and you can look very closely and you can see that there isn't even a drop of blood on the hair around this cut and it's clearly a cut i mean it's it's you know seamless <laughs> it's a seamless cut it doesn't miss you know it isn't torn it isn't ragged it's the same with the, the jaw strip as well um so we, we were looking for the the ear tag but we didn't find that we didn't find it we did find a, a dead chicken a dead a white hen which may or not be related i mean at the end of the day we couldn't do anything with that we could have brought it back, but we couldn't see any injuries on it had we seen an obvious injury that looked unusual we may have brought it back but, but we didn't 
Um, was there any sign of a struggle? Around this bird? Well, no, around the calf. Oh, no, no. You can see from the pictures, it's, there's, there's no signs of a struggle at all. I mean, the back end in particular, if you look at the photographs, you can see that the grass is up, is up in front of it, right close to where it is. So if an animal had been there chewing away, it would obviously press this grass down, you know, and there would have been gore and what have you. But there's nothing. I mean, the scene is, it was absolutely spotless, you know. But I can just, if you like, I can just do this for you and I'll run through what is um, is just the, the, the basic classic MO for these kind of incidents. And you'll see that the Tomodan one fits it perfectly. So remote location, no evidence of a struggle, no tracks, no signs of predation. The suggestion the animal was killed elsewhere and deposited at the scene. You know, th this applies to all these cases and it, it clearly applies to Tomodan. No blood or very little blood found at the scene and possible ev evidence of exsanguination or removal of blood. Now, there have been cases in the past where veterinarians have been involved and they've done uh, post-mortems on the animals and they've discovered an absence of blood. One case in particular um, was, was, was carried out by the National Institute for Discovery Science. And so these are highly trained scientific people and uh, they had veterinarians involved and uh, necropsies were performed. This particular animal, it had um, its eye had been removed, flesh around the eye had been removed, in a cut, a part of the ear, nothing else. Now, when they opened it up, they found that the animal had been pregnant, but the fetus wasn't, was missing. There was no sign the animal had given birth. They found a blue gel substance around the back end of the animal and around the eye where the cuts were. They could clearly see, and they used a microscope to document cut hair, which is something a predator obviously cannot do, you know, to actually cut hair in a straight line like that. Um, and also the heart quote from the vet was, it was shredded, but it was still inside its intact sack. So the sack was completely intact. The heart within it was shredded and no blood. So, you know, highly, highly strange. No easy explanation. I believe there was also an injury to the calf's skull. Well, uh, the thing about that is, and, and this, Again, we may have to step back a little bit to, to clarify that, which we can do. So I, I think we've probably covered the first visit there. So we, we went back a, a second time because I, I was actually interested in recovering the jawbone, you know, to see if it had any signs of, of knife marks or anything like that. We didn't find it. But we did find, and, and it was my partner, Vicky, she, she's very knowledgeable about nature, and she spotted the skull, part of the skull, and she saw on it two very unusual to her anyway scratches they look like scratches too parallel so we brought that back um and before i go into that i'll just quickly tell you that that day we we carried on around gaddings dam we did the full walk and what we discovered was um there's a herd up there at the top and it did, it was a mixed herd but it had it had calves it had jersey calves and i strongly suspect that that was the source of the herd little bit of research talking to people, we discovered that this was the source of the herd. Uh, you know, it was, and we discovered the farmer, as you know, and um, I chose not to contact him because having liaised with David Curtin, what we found is that David Curtin had visited this exact farm in 2002 to investigate a sheep mutilation, and this sheep mutilation had the identical jaw strip 
all the way back then. Now, what I found was that this case, it wasn't the same farmer, but it was a different, a female farmer who was renting land from this farmer. So this lady was very cooperative with David at the time, but the other guy wasn't. And he'd promised David that if anything else happened, that he'd let him know. Now, David heard from people in the area that other things had happened over the years, but he didn't let him know, this farmer. So we know the farmers, he's not, he's not friendly to the subject, if you will, which is a shame. But it's, it's clearly the same farm, the same area. What happened when you yeah. uh, retrieved parts of the, the jaw, did you say? Right, so th- this, this was the second time we retrieved part of the skull. And we brought it back. And that, the, the beneficial thing about doing it this way is that, the, um, I mean, I must say, when we went the first time, um, the, the animal had been predated upon, you know. We could clearly see that the, there were maggots and things and the foxes had, had been dragging it around. And, you know, this is unusual but not uncommon. So sometimes in these cases, the animals won't go anywhere near them. But in this case, it did. It does happen, though, you know. Um, and so... We found this part of the skull and we thought it was interesting, but we couldn't say for sure that it wasn't caused by foxes until we got it back. So we got it back uh, and we had a close look and, you know, I've got a little digital microscope. So we got that out and we took some pictures and I put a torch to it as well. And I found some really interesting stuff. And I think you have seen the pictures, Craig, so you'll know what I'm talking about. And what, what we seemed to find was that there were... Two scratches, I'm calling them scratches, that's kind of what they look like, but they're very clean, they're not, they're not rough, and they're quite deep. Um, and at the top and bottom of each of these scratches was a hole. And what we also found is that they were coming in at quite a shallow angle. And I actually did a test and I found that if you, if you held a pen and you rested it on the head of the animal, that's about the angle you're looking at of approach. So these holes almost seemed to penetrate right through. At one point, I thought they penetrated right through into the skull cavity, but I found they didn't. By putting a light under them, they looked to actually... I've not sent you those pictures, but I will do, Craig. They looked to go right through. But what I did, and and this tells you something, is um, the only thing I could find to pass through them, because I thought if I can pass through and see where they come out, was a hair. It was a human hair. That's how fine they are. Uh, And so... I passed them through and I found they didn't penetrate right through. The hole I'd found on the inside was actually a natural hole which came out somewhere else. But they did go very deep into the skull. What I have to say, though, is we can't be sure that they happened as part of the mutilation because they weren't documented in the first set of photographs. Chances are that it was, but we can't say that for sure. So what do you think caused these injuries? Because they're obviously, you know, they are classic mutilation injuries, aren't they, for the most part? But there are also some others that, as you've explained, are quite quite strange and quite weird. And I assume that you've not come across, for instance, the, the injuries to the skull. I assume you've not come across those before. No, I haven't. And I, I did ask David as well, and he hadn't seen that particular injury before. No, no. Um, and I, I don't have an easy answer. I mean, I don't... I, I just don't. I mean, I can't see it being anything natural, to be honest with you, because the, the hole, the depth of the hole is quite, it's at least five mil, if not a bit more, you know, for the thickness of the skull. Um, so for something to penetrate, to, to sort of penetrate and ease off and scratch and penetrate again and then do it again, just seems very unusual to me. 
you know, even a claw or a, a tooth or something like that, it seems too fine. Like I say, you're talking a human hair size hole. And especially at that angle as well, it sounds like it's quite a shallow angle. If it was a, a, a tooth, for instance, then you would think that, you know, to get the purchase to go in, it would have to become a, a more, um, a, a less acute angle, shall we say. So, so yeah. that's interesting. So have you done any, has, has there been any further research or... Is it just one of those cases that will forever be a mystery, do you think? It, it probably will. I mean, unfortunately, that's probably the truth. Um, what, what I did do is I went, went again another time and we've actually retrieved the jawbone now. We, we've actually got most of the head actually now. But we wanted specifically to get the left side jawbone because we have the image of the cut going right across it and we know that the skin, the whole flesh was stripped from it. You know, And, and if you talk to... David Caton actually spoke to a butcher... And he was told that um, butchers would use high-pressure steam to strip bone like that because you're talking about separating sinew from the bone itself, you know, and the only other way is to kind of scrape it, you know. So we were looking to see if we could see any signs of anything like that, and there isn't. It is, it's perfectly smooth. So, yes, it probably will remain a mystery, but if, if any uh, new approaches become available where, you know, where we can look at bone or somebody discovers, ooh, I've got a bone and it shows this sign and this is a result of some kind of radiation or whatever. Maybe we can get some information later, you know, which is why we did retrieve that, that jawbone. Um, but yeah, unfortunately it's, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, nobody saw anything. I actually contacted the, the local pub, the shepherd's rest to see if anybody has seen anything in the area, you know, helicopters or anything, but no, they didn't have anything. So just one thing, which I'll just say before we, we move on, if we do, is um, looking close at the photographs. Uh, we had to do this because it was no good when we visited the scene, but looking close at the photographs, we could see, I think, that the tongue is missing because you can see the, the, the teeth on the opposite side of the jaw, which would be obscured, should be obscured by the tongue, essentially. And a removed tongue is a typical classic scenario you know a bloodlessly removed tongue and again this animal it was lying on an incline its head was low the lowest part of its body and i found that when i visited the site and so you would expect you know a, a, an absent tongue and all this big injury around the neck for to be quite a lot of blood pooling but there wasn't and also when i got there you know 12 days after there wasn't a lot left and when we went the next time it was probably another week it, there was hardly anything left. And within a month, there was nothing left. It was just, it was just bones. I don't, I don't know enough about that kind of thing to, you know, to be precise, but it just give me the impression that maybe it would break down quicker if, if that, you know, large volume of liquid was gone, you know? Yeah. Well, it's certainly a fascinating case and it's, um, it'll be interesting to see if there's any, um, any repeat in the future of, of any other cases in the area. So obviously, yeah. Obviously, you'll keep your eyes open for that because, as, as we know, Todmorden is an area that's that's rich in UFO activity anyway. So that that will be quite yeah. interesting. Um, just one, okay. So one one final thing then before we wrap up. Do you want to just go into a case that you mentioned? Um, is it the Cowling case in two thousand and one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, we could probably tie in a couple of things here, which would be Cheshire in twenty twenty one and Cowling in two thousand and one. So th this is one of David Kirsten's cases. 
but, but it's quite close to me and I've spoken to him quite a lot about it. So I feel I can talk about it a little bit for a specific reason as well. So this case, um, it was in 2001. It, it, you can actually, if you go online and you search for uh, the Craven Herald newspaper, the articles are still online, which is really good. Um, and what you'll find is talk of a big cat. So this farm in Cowling, which we, we've already established where it is. Yeah, it's about 10 miles from me. Um, and it was, it's quite rural. It's quite high on the moors, this where the farm was. And one thing David Caton established speaking to the farmer after the fact was that he had actually seen a UFO above this field. Now, they lost 83 sheep over five weeks at Cowling. It was, it was two, three, four, five a day, whatever, but it was over a, a five-week period, and it was 83 was the total in the end. People were seeing, there were a couple of reports of a big cat, not exactly in the area, not attacking sheep, but generally in the area. And so this made the press, and, and this is how the article came about. Now, David Caton got involved, and he went to speak with the farmer, and um, it was another guy, and I can't remember his name, but he's a big cat researcher. And he went up to the farm looking for signs of a big cat. Now, he didn't find anything, but what he did find was a lamb, a new, another dead lamb. And when he looked at this lamb, under instruction from David, just as David told me, open the mouth and have a look at the tongue. And it opened the mouth, so the mouth is closed. Open the mouth. The tongue has been cut off. So... This and, and again, it had also had some other marks which are more consistent with these surgical type mutilations than what you would expect from a big cat attack. So this this case got me thinking, you know, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I know um, skeptics will argue and I know that the authorities have argued birds can do that. So I'll just quickly tell you this little aside that. I have a book, um, it's called Circles of Deceit, and this farm in Ireland, in Feeney, in Northern Ireland, he lost over 400 sheep over 20 years, and the majority of them had the tongues cut off, cut off. The police said, oh, it's just crows. Now, the farmer said, well, why just my field? <laughs> why, not, why not the one, the other side of the barbed wire fence, you know? They, this particular farmer, he... he suspected a local now this went on for years and when the police funnily enough said oh it's the crows animals started to turn up alive with the tongues off very strange and anyway eventually the suspect died and the mutilation stopped for a week and then they carried on so you know so this thing of tongues cut tongues um, and not having an easy explanation is significant it's important I've heard it said that, that um, ravens will take tongues from lambs, but this is when they're being born, the head is, is stuck out, essentially, and the tongue is stuck out, then they'll do it. They will not open the mouth of an animal and straightly cut the tongue out. No, and of okay. course, it, it would suggest that if it's, a, if it's a clean cut, then it's not going to be an animal because an animal would grab hold of the tongue and, let's be honest, would... would try and rip it out rather than cut it out yeah yeah and get getting at it you know if the animal's mouth if the animal's dead and its mouth's closed how does any kind of predator get in there because what they often find is that these these tongues are bloodlessly removed so the, the easiest conventional explanation for that is that it's occurred post-mortem the heart isn't pumping 
the blood doesn't come out because anyone knows if you cut your tongue, there's blood everywhere, you know. So just moving on a little bit then, this brings us to uh, Cheshire. So in Cheshire, Christmas Day, just gone, there was an attack on livestock. 30 sheep now I, I think you've read you've read the article i wrote on this craig and um, i'm happy to hold my hands up here and say a lot of these instances quite possibly are sheep worrying by dogs you know that's what this first case could have been that although christmas day christmas eve christmas day 30 sheep you know and a couple of days later there was a second attack in cheshire and this was the one where the police suddenly said they were looking for a, a larger predator a big cat was mentioned before the police took this report off the Facebook. I guess somebody higher up said, <laughs> you know, you can't be saying that, you know. Um, anyway, so things, these caught my eye. So I was paying attention, just searching the news, you know, a couple of, couple of times a day, whatever, just seeing what's coming up and finding these stories. And then the big cat stories started to come in and, and there's some quite impressive ones i think you've seen the one that's um, chester meadows in the article there's a guy took a photograph there now i'd like to go post lockdown visit the look because we pinned down the exact location he took the photograph from and if that is a genuine picture if it isn't a tree or something and it doesn't look to be but without going on site it's hard to be sure um then the object the, the, the animal is massive it's it's at least as big as a lion, if not bigger. It's absolutely massive. Because we know it's further back than the dog walker. And with a bit of image analysis, we could see it's it's at least waist height, if not higher, you know, to the dog walker. And, it, and it's actually 100 metres further back. That is a big animal. Massive, yeah. It looks the similar size to a liger. I mean, I, <laughs> I can't believe that there is a natural animal the size of a liger. I'm black running around Cheshire, you know? I can't believe that. Just bringing this to a close then, this section anyway, um, the next attack I discovered in Cheshire was was one, it was um, three sheep, it was one sheep, sorry, and two lambs had been killed. Um, and I actually reached out to the animal owners on this one because the, the names were put in the paper a little bit better. And what intrigued me is, as soon as I saw this, I thought it said the police were quoted as saying there are some extremely unusual elements to this case. And as soon as I read that, I thought, I know what that is. It's going to be missing tongues. I know it is. It took about another three or four days before a new article came out. It gave me the, the owner's names and it revealed the police had found missing tongues. They said the animals had had their necks broken. I don't know. Without a necropsy, how, how they know, I don't know. And I know one wasn't carried out, um, but they, they said the tongues had been cut out and the um, swabs had revealed metallic particles. So a bladed object, a bladed instrument, you know, in theory. Um, now, I've actually done a frame of information for this case now, just recently. So we'll have to see what comes back because there was mention of footprints as well, which is extremely unusual. Do we know what sort of footprints these... were with a human or... or... I, I human human footprint yeah human yes rather than or, animal or maybe not uh, who, who knows um, exactly yeah so but that was my intrigue to see the pictures you know yeah yeah so what what was interesting about this particular instance is that all of a sudden this one is attributed to humans it's not dogs and it's not big cats this is humans so we've got again this series of events happening in a cluster 
UFO sightings I didn't find. I found one earlier last year, but not this year. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating. Like, thank you. There's, there's, there's some really, really interesting stories there. I'd love to talk to you again sometime, especially about the um, the localised UFO phenomena, because that's something that um, I, I've got a real interest in, uh, and I've done some research on that, so it'd be really great to sort of compare notes on that. Can you just remind yeah, everybody of, um, of your Facebook page, where they can contact you if they need to? Yeah, so um, I have a Facebook page called uh, UFOs Over Barlick. That is a shortening of Barn Oldswick, Barlick. Um, you can contact me on there, or you could email me at lee.om at hotmail.co.uk. Um, yeah, and actually, if you don't mind, I, I just can I give a little plug out? Sure. Um, I think you, you, your listeners will find this interesting, Craig, that I, I have a company called Incredible Creations that I run with my business partner and fiance, Victoria Morris. And uh, we, we generally do climbing stuff. So we do caves and climbing walls under subcontract to entrepreneurs climbing walls. But we also do murals, fossil recreations and that kind of thing. And so, yes, I'm not trying to sell you anything. But what I am going to tell you is we did a set of sculptures um, up at the Pendle Sculpture Trail. So it's just off Pendle Hill and it's absolutely free. It's currently closed, unfortunately, due to COVID. But when it does open again, it's absolutely free. And we did a set of sculptures up there, um, a black dog. So these are things that we're all interested in. <laughs> a boggart, which is a very northern uh, folklore creature with paranormal association, uh, a dryad or a wood nymph and a tree, a unicorn and there's a fairy as well. So these all have poems and the idea was for families to go and, uh, go and visit them. But yeah, I think some of your listeners might, might find that interesting. Thanks, Lee. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I really appreciate your time. Can I just remind everybody to, uh, to visit my website, which is uh, craigbryant.co.uk. My book is The Shadow Man of Accrington, which, of course, is available on Amazon. Paranormal Pendle will return. Um, I've got a very special guest lined up for episode three, but I'll just keep his name under wraps for the time being. And remember, keep watching The Shadows. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. <laughs>